Our text today is one verse. We're going to put it up on the screen for you. Leviticus 25.10 And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. Now, the pastors have asked me to take the opportunity this July 4th Sunday gives us to reflect on liberty as a nation. That's a really tall order to cover in about 30 minutes or so. I have to be concise, but I hope I'm clear as well. Now, you'll notice if you are here regularly that I won't be following our consistent practice of exegeting and applying the text. They have released me from that responsibility. I don't want to squeeze a text into things. I want to, we felt it would be better if I just shared these thoughts. These are reflections that come from study I've done over the past three years or so on a book project that hopefully you'll hear more about later this year. We feel this is a timely issue because the principles upon which this country was founded are in greater dispute than they ever have been. Those principles are expressed nowhere better than in the words that open the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by the Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. See, we're taking a, a real civics lesson live in our country these days. Many contend that the stirring words I just read were empty platitudes, that they applied only to a privileged class of men and, in fact, have never been true for all Americans. Others hold that these words started a project in liberty that remains incomparable to anything the world has ever known. This divide is growing and finds its way into our daily news, our social media feeds, our political rhetoric, our conversations in our homes, our view of who you are as a people. Now, I'm not going to attempt to resolve all that today, but I do want to offer some reflections on how these ideas of liberty and equality may be able to inform us as believers today. A couple of just quick caveats. I'm going to be referencing the founders throughout. A couple of points to help us stay focused. First, when we think of the founders, we tend to think of the big six, Washington, Franklin, Jefferson, Adams, Madison, and Hamilton. But there were hundreds of men and some women who played a founding role in the United States. Second, you'll often hear something like, well, the founders believed this, or the founders stood for this, as if they were all the same. The founders were a diverse lot. What we have in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution came to us through negotiation and compromise and argument among strong-willed leaders with very different views about what to do next. Now, the text we're drawing from 
Leviticus 25.10 is from God's law given to govern his chosen people. It's a glorious proclamation that once every 50 years there would be a new beginning. A year of celebration, a year of liberty where inequalities would be corrected and justice would be settled. It may seem familiar to you because it's also found, at least in part, in the inscription on the Pennsylvania State House bell that we know as the Liberty Bell. I think there's a picture with the inscription in King James English, Proclaim liberty throughout all the land and unto the inhabitants thereof. And then a bunch of X's and V's and X's. <laughs> the bell has become perhaps the defining symbol of American aspirations. As I've considered those aspirations, there is in the history of the bell a kind of symbolic language that may help us consider these fundamental ideas of liberty and equality and how they shape our understanding in America. The title of my message is Lessons from the Liberty Bell. And there are three points I want to draw from it. The biblical roots of American liberty, the Republican vision of American liberty, and the unfinished task of American liberty. And for the sake of time, rather than filling this message with supporting quotes, I've created a quote sheet to help you see how these points were understood back in the day. A link to that PDF is going to be sent out to you this afternoon with um, other information about this week. Uh, you can feel free to, to open that up and maybe sit around at your cookout and read aloud these stirring words from people who are very much more eloquent than we could ever be. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, I stand uh, in the per permissive will of the elders sharing thoughts and reflections, God, that I pray will help us to think more clearly about our day, help us to converse more graciously about our day, help us to live in this country as better citizens in our day. Lord, we want to be a distinctive people. We want to be a people who is discerning and wise. So I pray these words would simply help us in that endeavor. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. First point, the biblical roots of American liberty. The Liberty Bell was first cast in England in the 1750s. It was hung in the newly constructed Pennsylvania State House, what we now call Independence Hall. It cracked on its very first ring. That was a bummer. So they, <laughs> so they melted it down and recast it. The people who did it were Pass and Stowe, metal workers in Philadelphia. 
they didn't do a great job because the first time they rang it, it sounded terrible. So they had to melt it down again. And what we have is Liberty Bell version 3.0. That one cracked sometime in the early 1800s and was last rung in 1846 on George Washington's birthday. Now, it's the royal governor of Pennsylvania who selected the inscription. He was a Quaker. And the liberty he had in mind was the liberty of conscience that would allow the free worship of God as a right of every person in the colony of Pennsylvania. He found this idea of liberty of worship most profoundly expressed in the words of the Bible. In fact, drawing from Scripture to express civic values was normal in the early years of our country. The Bible has been called the third founding document of America alongside the Declaration and the Constitution. The worldview of the Bible was the worldview of most Americans in the founding era. Rich and poor, farmer and tradesman, woman and man, patriot and Tory, black and white. The Bible shaped the consciences and morality and values of the founding generation. Now, this doesn't mean that Christian principles were the only ideas the founders cared about. They cared about the classical philosophy of the Greeks and Romans, the humanism of the Enlightenment, the scientific language of the age of reason, novel economic and political theories. All those poured into the mindsets of the founders as they pondered and debated what to make of America. These non-biblical ideas were freely imbibed by the founders and they found their way into the language and philosophy of their politics as well. But there's a profound difference between the ideas that influenced the revolution and the worldview out of which the American experience emerged. That worldview was fundamentally rooted in the Bible. The Bible's God-centered view of all things found its way into public conversation in early America, most commonly in the language of the providence of God. And you will hear every founder talking this way. The idea of the providence of God is that God's activity in the earth has a purpose. And that purpose is to move all things to his appointed ends. Now there's much speculation and debate among them about how God's providential hand was working in any particular circumstance. But most people, as a rule, never doubted that events were unfolding in their world perfectly according to God's plan. There's no randomness in the way they thought about their world. Among the founders, you'll often see the language of providence used to kind of fill a, a gap between their their new enlightened confidence in human reason and progress and the mysterious sense that even all events play out on a much larger stage than meets the natural eye. Now, if you want proofs of the biblical roots of the founding of the country, I'll offer you a couple. First, you'll be hard-pressed to find anyone of consequence in the founding era questioning the idea of God's providence 
or the importance of the Bible, even in private. In the 18th century, intellectuals in Europe and England couldn't wait to throw out the Bible and its truth. But not in America. The founding generation had all grown up in the Great Awakening, that spiritual revival that most historians see as the incubator of the American Revolution. The emerging American consciousness, fueled by the awakening, was God-centered and Bible-shaped. Another proof. We can look specifically at the opening words of the Declaration we just read earlier. Among the four men tasked with drafting the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, and Roger Sherman, only one, Roger Sherman, professed a personal faith for salvation on the basis of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yet when it came to building a case for liberty and equality, the philosophies of the day, the humanism of the day, the age of reason, couldn't carry the weight that all men are equal and have inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It could not be found there. The only place they could find transcendent justification for the revolutionary ideas that individuals were fundamentally equal and they had these rights is because they were created in the image of God. That's where they got it. When they needed weight, they went to theology. When pressed to defend liberty and equality, they rested their argument on the truth of the Bible. Now, in our day, we see an accelerating move of our culture, not only away from its biblical heritage, but actually toward an aggressive denial of its biblical heritage. There is an intentional and, I believe, subversive rewriting of American history taking place in our day. And that new version has no place for God or His truth. At the very least, that's dishonest in historical interpretation. It is a twisting of the historical record. But it also has dangerous implications for our society. To sever our civic identity from its biblical anchor is to cast us adrift on a sea of godless subjectivism. And that journey never ends well. To hold to the biblical roots of our country is not the same thing, though, as believing that this is a Christian nation. To contend that the founders were Christian men intent on creating a Christian country is a superficial view of the complex world of ideas that they held and what they were trying to accomplish. The foresight of the founders planned for a pluralistic society by guaranteeing the freedom of religion and religious expression for everyone. The cause of Christ has been promoted not because the government was built on Christian religion, 
but because the government took its hands off of Christian religion and allowed the truth of God to make its own case in the public square. In light of this, what kind of Americans should we be? We should be grateful Americans. Grateful that we can gather freely today to worship. Grateful to be able to see four people declare their faith in Jesus Christ without persecution. In baptism. That we can freely worship and we can scatter from here to share the good news with others. That we can invite people here this Wednesday to celebrate the power of the gospel in people's lives and to learn without oppression what it means to find eternal life. Those freedoms are precious and they've cost much in sacrifice and blood to preserve. We need to protect those, but we need to start by being grateful people. We need to be grateful to God. God says, be thankful. We must be thankful if we are going to see God preserve what we see in our freedoms. Second point, the Republican vision of American liberty. Now, when I speak of Republican vision, I'm not talking about the present-day Republican Party. And I'm not talking about what we know as Republican politics. I'm talking about something much more profound. Republicanism in the Founders' era was the idea that government should not flow down from a hereditary monarchy, but should flow up from the consent of the people being governed. It is this political vision that was almost universally held among the founders. Going back to our bell, the State House bell didn't actually ring on the 4th of July. Sorry to disappoint you. If you were going to ring your bell today, hold off. July 4th is the day the Declaration was ratified by the Continental Congress. It had to then be sent out to be copied. Took four days for that. So the State House bell was rung most famously at the first public reading of the Declaration of Independence in Philadelphia, July 8, 1776. It rang along with other bells throughout the land as 13 colonies united to declare themselves free of British control. Now there's a telling of this story that makes much of a defiant revolutionary spirit. You give me liberty or give me death. Don't tread on me. We have this mind, these wild-eyed guys looking to tar and feather people, looking to make trouble, looking to start a war. In this view, the founders were a bunch of radicals who were bent on independence if it killed them. But the brilliance of the founders was not how they started a revolution, but how they didn't end with a revolution. 
Historically, revolutions tend to produce anarchy, and anarchy leads to more tyranny. It happened in France just two decades after this. It has happened in Russia and China and throughout the world ever since. But it didn't happen here in America. It didn't happen here because the founding generation had an idea of liberty that included and even required equitable, just, and representative government. In other words, a constitutional republic. In this sense, actually, the founders were a conservative lot. They were committed to law and against mob rule. Most, at least privately, decried the events like the Boston Tea Party because they saw in those events the unraveling of a just society. This is why, for example, John Adams chose to represent and defend the soldiers accused of murder in the Boston Massacre. It's why Alexander Hamilton helped his Tory college professor escape from a mob looking to arrest him in New York. If you read the Declaration of Independence carefully, it's not a radical manifesto. It's actually, after that opening preamble, kind of boring. See, it's a carefully constructed legal brief. It lays out a closely reasoned argument in law on how the actions of the British government violated the British constitutional rights of the colonies and how England had gone to war against its own people. It was an explanation to the world that the break with Great Britain was in fact the only legal option the colonies had under their circumstances. That was their argument. The founders weren't throwing off government. They were choosing self-government over tyrannical oppression because they had no other choice. But they were already working on something new, something that gave the people a voice in their government and made the government accountable to those people without turning over society to mob rule. Something that carefully balanced power between national and local government, between those who made the laws, those who applied the laws, and those who adjudicated the laws. It started with a placeholding Articles of Confederation during the war, and that began to peter out and led to, in, in the summer of 1787, a gathering in Philadelphia of 55 volunteer statesmen who in about the time it takes to do a college semester wrote and debated and agreed upon our national constitution. The first of its kind in world history. It is a form of government that has weathered nearly 250 years of constant social change and serves as the model for every non-totalitarian government created in the world since. One of the things that breaks my heart, it seems like everybody is into government bashing these days. I've got liberal friends, I've got conservative friends. You read their social media feeds, and one thing they agree on is that the politicians are ruining everything. They long for the day when the government wasn't driven by politicians. 
Friends, that, that day has never occurred in this country. Literally, from day one, politics was wrapped all up in government. Let me just give you an illustration. Constitution was completed 17, September 17, 1787. It then needed to be ratified by state conventions that would be called by state legislatures. In Pennsylvania, those folks who didn't like the Constitution because they got a sneak early read on it because they were just upstairs while the, the, the Constitutional Convention was happening downstairs in the State Hall, they realized they were in the minority. And they had no way of really stopping it being ratified in a convention. Except they realized, what if we just don't show up? And so, the day they were going to vote on the, the convention, having the convention which would have ratified the Constitution, they took a lunch break, everybody took a lunch break, and they came back in the afternoon, and everybody who was against it never came back. They just bolted. So, the sergeant of arms realized this isn't good. We can't vote. So he went out and tried to round some up. And he eventually found two guys in their apartments packing up, trying to get out of Dodge. So he told them, listen, you need to come back and vote because we don't have a quorum. And if you don't vote, we can't vote for this. And they say, we ain't coming back. So he got together a goon squad. And he brought the goon squad in. And those guys literally carried these two recalcitrant voters into the state house set them down in their chairs, bolted the door so they couldn't leave, and forced them to vote. So they ended up voting no, but it didn't matter because there's a quorum, and everyone else voted yes, and it passed. So Pennsylvanians, you have a goon squad to thank you for, for, your, for your citizenship. My point of the story is this. It's easy to complain about politics and politicians. Americans, we have always been good about complaining about politicians. But before you give up on this government, ask yourself, if not this, then what? Is there something that would work better? As Christians, we know governments populated like churches and schools and families and businesses with sinners. And sinners have agendas that aren't always in the best interest of everybody. Sinners will fight for power and influence and control. That, my friends, is politics, whether it's in the government or in my family. The genius of the founders was not staying above politics, but in creating a structure where politicians could dupe politics and the government would still run and accomplish its purpose. So what kind of Americans should we then be? In light of this, we should be praying Americans. As Joseph mentioned earlier, we are called to pray by God for our leaders. Not on the basis of their integrity, but on the basis of their need and the power of prayer. We need to reject the culture of complaining and disrespect for those in our government, including our politicians, and intercede for them, crying out to God 
to overrule the sinful agendas with righteousness from his throne. He can accomplish his righteousness through sinners. I hope he's doing that right now through me. Let's stop whining and moaning. And let's start praying. Third, the unfinished task of American liberty. Proclaim liberty to all the inhabitants thereof. That's the inscription on the state house bell. Now in the Hebrew nation, proclaiming liberty to all the inhabitants delivered liberty to all the inhabitants. In Bible times, in the Hebrew nation, what got proclaimed got done. Not so the American nation. The Declaration, the Revolution, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights did not deliver liberty and equality to all the inhabitants thereof. Most profoundly, this is expressed in the reality that our country came into being with legalized slavery. Liberty Bell, by the early 1800s, had become sort of a relic. Cracked, didn't use it that much, kind of set up in the bell tower. In the 1830s, a group of people seized on this unfulfilled promise symbolized by a now permanently cracked bell. They were black, they were white, they were men, they were women. And they joined together to advocate for the abolition of slavery. It was the abolitionists of the 1830s who named the Pennsylvania State House bell the Liberty Bell. And who once again put it into play as a rallying point for freedom. This time, it was a movement for freedom of people who'd been denied the liberty and equality and rights owed to them in the Declaration of Independence. Now, we know we are deeply polarized on this issue in our day. As the founders were in their day. There are some who say that the entire history of the country is best understood as a study in racial and ethnic oppression. They would say pejoratively that an elite racial majority built the country on the subjugation and discrimination against racial and ethnic minorities. There's another side who would point to the amazing opportunities and achievements that immigrants and minorities have accessed throughout our history they would ask, pejoratively as well, if this is such a bad place, why do so many people want to come and so few want to leave? Now there is history in both of those positions that we'd be wise to consider. But neither accurately reflects the orientation of the founder. Their commitment to the ideal that all men are created equal was sincere and deeply held. Yet their application of that commitment to equality and liberty was deeply compromised, if not hypocritical, in their personal decisions, in the institutions and systems they created. Now I'm not going to get into the reason slavery was not abolished in the Constitution here. Actually, 
This past month, JT and I in our podcast, uh, That Don't Fit, took two episodes to talk about why the, the, the founders did not remove slavery in the Constitution. You can check that out if you want to hear more about that issue. But we are left, even to this day, with unfinished business. The unfinished task of liberty and equality for all. If you read the founders' documents, you will see an almost universal commitment to the grand ideas of equality and liberty. For the first time in human history, you had a whole group of nation builders aspiring to create a government that espoused the God-given value of human beings and ascribed to them inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That had never happened before, anywhere. That was truly revolutionary. Equally true, though, if you look at their personal lives, the founders regularly failed to live up to the ideas they espoused. Many, though not all, owned persons in bondage to slavery. Some gradually freed their slaves. Many did not. Few actually believed the end of slavery was possible in their lifetime. Virtually none could comprehend a mixed-race society of free and equal Americans. That is tragic. And it's been a woeful legacy of the founding generation. What's fascinating is if you dig deeper into their private worlds, into their letters and conversations, They knew they were wrong. They knew they were failing. They knew they were kicking this issue down the road for somebody else to deal with. Almost to a man, the founders knew the issue of race-based slavery would haunt the future and that what they were doing would have tragic implications that it ultimately produced a devastating civil war would have surprised none of them. We can rightly critique their failures. We can fault their naive assumptions that the end of the slave trade would mean the end of slavery or that the end of slavery would mean the end of racial oppression. We must lament the past and present pain and cost of inequality in slavery and racism and every other form. But we may not self-righteously write off their efforts as a failure or treat their work as simply a structure for systemic oppression. The truth is, they addressed the issues they thought they had to address to start a country out of nothing while it seemed to be falling apart at the same time. The amount of duress they experienced led them to compromise on on the, the ideals and led to what became the greatest crack in our country's history.
But they wrote a constitution that they believed would allow their failures and shortcomings to be addressed by future generations. They had that in mind. We've kept this open to be used to be resolved in the future when other people can do it. It was their hope that the people, we the people, would fulfill their best, best aspirations over time. They left it to us. The Declaration of Independence and the Constitution have made the unfinished task of freedom and equality our work as well as theirs. So what type of Americans should we be? In light of this, we should be justice-loving Americans. We should be Americans who hate oppression wherever we see it. We should be Americans who are aware that sin plays out in persons and in systems. We should be Americans who not only see inequities around us, but act to do something about it however we can. Not out of guilt, because guilt will never sustain anything worth doing. But out of a commitment to biblical justice as God defines it, because God himself commands us to do it. So here's the question as we close. How do we proclaim liberty throughout the land and to the inhabitants thereof today? The Christian answer to that question is gospel truth. It is historically beneficial to be on the right side of revolution. It is eternally essential to be on the right side of resurrection. Within just a few years of the ratification of the Constitution, Bible-believing Christians throughout the country began to realize that America was not and never would be a city set on a hill. They were sobered by the inability of the political process to deliver on Christian values. They began to see that a liberty that did not free people from the bondage of sin offered little freedom in this world and no hope in the next. So they turned their attention about 1800 to the proclamation of the gospel. You see Christians, many staying in the government, but no longer counting on the government to do God's work. What emerged was a dynamic and far-reaching vision for the worldwide mission of the gospel. Missions exploded because America could not be that city on a hill. The Bible was taken and given to everyone. The moral will to address injustice emerged primarily from biblical truth. We are here this morning because our founders provided freedom to worship in our country. We should be thankful for that gift on this 4th of July, but our calling to this world is not patriotism. It's to be ambassadors of another government. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our duty comes not from the Constitution the founders gave us, but from the commission Jesus gave us. To be his disciples, making disciples in all nations, including this one, and promoting the government of the kingdom of Christ where true liberty will reign forever. God bless America.
and God have mercy on America.